Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that, that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Ryan Bell, and this is episode 71. My guest today is Aaron Rabinowitz, co-host of two popular podcasts, Embrace the Void and Philosophers in Space. In this episode, we are talking about ethics and morality and moral philosophy. These are among my favorite topics, and I'm excited to be able to talk to an expert about these subjects. Specifically, we are talking about moral realism. And at the end of the conversation, I confess my faith and give my heart to moral realism. Aaron is jubilant. In between, we sort of move freely between virtue ethics, evolutionary theories of moral knowledge, meta-ethics, the big question of where our morals come from, where they are grounded, and much more. Aaron is what you might call an evangelist, the meta-ethical theory called moral realism, which claims that there are objective, belief-independent moral truths that are simply a part of the fabric of our existence. Aaron and I have talked at some length about this, both publicly and privately, and now finally here in this podcast. Uh, I've done some reading, and perhaps you have too, but if you haven't heard of this concept of moral realism, you'll be fine. I think you'll learn a lot here. But what I realized after we were finished talking is that we didn't actually end up talking very much about moral realism or answers to common objections and so forth. But all is not lost. Aaron recently gave a talk to the Triangle Free Thought Society in North Carolina on this very subject where he spells out his views for about an hour where I am not able to interrupt him all the time. So please watch that video as a companion to this podcast if you want to learn more about moral realism. I'll, of course, put the link in the show notes, and you can find it there, and I hope you will will watch it. Aaron is a philosopher-in-residence for the Rutgers Honor College and teaches ethics through the Rutgers Philosophy Department. In recent years, Aaron has taught on various ethical challenges, emerging from cognitive science, including the potential for sentient AI and the risks and rewards of superintelligent, weak AIs. His research interests include developing a robust secular moral realism that allows for a satisfying sense of meaning and a life of flourishing. His pedagogical focus is in making philosophy accessible through a focus on the applied ethical challenges that people confront every day. Aaron holds a BA in philosophy and drama from the University of Virginia and an MA in philosophy from Colorado State University. 
I will, of course, provide links to both of his excellent podcasts in the show notes and highly encourage you to check them out. Aaron is incredibly smart and articulate, but he also has an astonishing grasp of pop culture combined with a dark, ironic sense of humor. I guarantee you will learn something by listening to what he has to say. This podcast is brought to you by the Life After God members. I want to especially thank John, who joined as an advisor since the last episode was produced. Thank you so much for your support, John. The members and other patrons of Life After God make this podcast possible so that it will be available to everyone without cost. If you would like to be a part of this group of individuals who help to produce this podcast, I'd like to invite you to become a member. All you have to do is go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. You can contribute any amount you like as a recurring monthly donation from as little as $1 up to as much as this podcast is worth to you. The membership level starts at $5 a month. And in addition to knowing that you're making this podcast available for people who need it, you will also be joining a growing community of people who are thinking, talking, and working together on what a meaningful life after God looks like. When you become a member, you'll be able to join the Facebook group where members discuss podcast episodes, share their stories and support one another, give feedback about the podcast, suggestions for future episodes, and much more. If you want to learn more about the Life After God community, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. There you can see all the links to there you can find all the links to our social media so that you can follow us on whichever platform you prefer and stay in touch with all the exciting things that we have coming up. So now without any further delay, here is my conversation with Aaron Rabinowitz. Aaron Rabinowitz, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure. Actually, we did a little uh, live hangout not too long ago, so it doesn't feel like it's been very long, but uh, for my regular podcast listeners, this will be the first time uh, hearing from you, so I'm super excited to to get into some of the things that you and I have been chatting about for the last um, several weeks. So before we get into the meat of the subject, tell us a little bit about your background. That could be Obviously, I guess your your academic background, but I'd also be interested to hear about just your personal relationship to sort of the basic subject of this podcast, which is post-theism. I mean, a lot of my guests are post-theistic, mm-hmm. but many are have never been religious. So what what is your story? Sure. Um, so I was raised by sort of, um, you know, I, I got very lucky in terms of I was raised by um, fairly uh, educated, um, thoughtful hippies who were sort of, you know, they're very liberal. Um, and so, like, I, I'm certainly one of the people who was not raised specifically to believe in any particular religion or God. Um, I was, uh, I spent some time when I was younger, we, were, we would go to the Unitarian Universalist Church, um, which uh, is sort of the role, again, of religions. It doesn't really stick i think for a lot of people but it's a good it's a good sort of it it gave me a good sense of what the kind of community aspect is that a lot of people i think miss when they're not in that religious world anymore or if they've never if they've never been in that religious world i feel i think i hear a lot of um sort of skeptics and secular folks who who feel like they're also struggling to maintain a good community um so 
that's certainly that's my my personal background um i uh, when I got to college and found out that philosophy was something that living people still do, um, got very into <laughs> that, um, and that sort of became my focus, uh, specifically ethics. I really, I'm, I'm fascinated by um, this incredibly important subject that I think is simultaneously sort of very difficult for people to understand, and yet we're all kind of doing it all the time. Um, and right. sort of what is the nature of that system? Like, are there ways to do it better and worse? Like, there's so much hangs on. Like, and like, it's so contrary to the normal version of what people think of when they think of philosophy as like this thing that has no impact on our lives. Obviously, that's not true of any of philosophy, but in my opinion, but um, you can most easily see how directly ethics impacts people. Um, and I think it's something, especially that people you know, in religion and then post-religion or never in religion, no matter where you're, go you're coming from, you're, you care a lot about ethics, I think, even if you don't always put it in those terms. Yeah, I feel like, you know, what I often say is that I grew up in a really religious household and went into theology, but I think for the same reasons that you ended up studying philosophy, I had these, and I guess I was trained as a child to be concerned about um, matters of the heart and the mind and um, eternity and goodness and good and evil. I mean, a big part of my theological upbringing was this sort of struggle between good and evil, uh, between Christ and Satan and all of this stuff. And so there was, the, in my sort of imagination growing up, there was this cosmic conflict going on between good and evil. And a big part of my theological formation was to sort of figure that out and to be on the right side of it and to make sure that I wasn't being deceived. The Seventh-day Adventist church has a big sort of tradition around and teaching around the soon coming of Jesus and, and being ready for that moment and judgment and, you know, how God would decide who were his people and who weren't. And it, it was, it was very um, heavy, I think as a kid. And I know a lot mm -hmm. of, especially evangelicals grow up with the weight of that, um, on them. And I guess I never had the freedom to explore some of those issues with a kind of joy. Uh, I guess there was mm -hmm. always a kind of weight around, um, getting it wrong or being wrong and always wanting to be right. And I, I think, you know, it led me to be a certain kind of, I mean, it created me to be a certain kind of person which still cares about those things in, in a really deep way. Um, and has struggled the last five years to kind of disconnect from a philosophical system that I was raised in and try to find my footing in some other account of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, human morality. So, yeah. So it's, I mean, it's interesting, I guess. Did you have like a Sunday school experience like where you went to with other, <laughs> other kids and that type of stuff or was, was it not? Yeah, there were some, there were some Sunday school. There was some sitting in on, you know, sermons, quote unquote, um, that were sort of they were like the sermons that as written by someone who does like a new york times op-ed piece right like they were very witty they were very sort of thoughtful a lot of the time they were very non-religious um and then there was like a really high quality 
sex education um, course that was taught through the church hmm, that that's good. you know made up for the lack. I mean, it was it was high quality in the sense that it talked about sort of the positive experience of sex and not just the biological concerns and and potential consequences and that sort of thing. Right. So it was a good really great substitute when you're growing up in the south and the um you know the the <laughs> public schools are not providing exactly the right kind of material for that. <laughs> so, yeah. So you grew up in the south. Yeah, I grew up um outside of Virginia. Um I was one of very few people with a name like Rabinowitz in my area that I was aware of. And we didn't go to any sort of um, Jewish, you know, we're, we're sort of you know, very, very loosely culturally Jewish at this point. We're definitely not religious Jewish. We would get together for Passover in New York City sometimes as a, um, you know, as, as just a, an excuse for a reunion, essentially. There was, there's a very sort of strong contingent, I think, of atheist Jews post-World War II. Right. Um, and I think that our family kind of falls out of that, like, communist atheist Jews. Um, so that was the, I guess, the closest I had to a religious heritage. Um, Do you know why your family chose a Unitarian Universalist uh, expression to be kind of their sort of liberal, non-theistic, or not super-theistic uh, way of being engaged in spiritual community and why they didn't go with, like, a Reformed synagogue or something like that? Um, I don't think my father ever had a very strong calling to Judaism at all, and my mother is uh, sort of Midwestern uh, lapsed. Uh, she, she sort of, she, she sort of, I guess, broadly speaking, um, uh, Protestants. Right. Um, okay. So, like, I think at that point in time, it was probably, I don't know the exact story, I'm sure like my father could tell me, but like, they probably had some friends um, in the area who also liked that church or knew someone about it and knew something about it and they were looking for some community, right? They had a small child who was driving them crazy and they wanted to get out of the house, I imagine. Um, right. That kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So as you move into your young adult years and head off to college, did you always know that you wanted to study philosophy? Um, not in the, I mean, like not in those terms. I, um, I was very interested in, I guess from a young age, I was told that I had a strong sense of justice, which may have just meant that I was a pain uh, when it, <laughs> when it came to like issues of fairness. But I was like, I was very interested in these questions, I think early on. Um, and like I was, you know, from the Unitarian Universalist Church, I got a sort of steady stream of humanism um, from my father. I got a lot of psychology and from uh, my mother, I got a lot of sort of virtue training in in the Boy Scouts. And from my stepmother, I got a bunch of training in um, uh, uh, mindful communication. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, from my stepfather, I actually got a lot of a lot of very valuable kinds of um, educations that I think were were sort of coming together in in the background to form what would be my interest in ethics. And then I guess sort of one of the main turning points was around fourteen years old or so. My father gave me um, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance to read. Oh yeah, um, which which I read through and it it cracked me open like an egg. Um, mm. it's just such a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a trippy thing to hand to a 14 year old. Yeah. No kidding. I had a little trouble getting into the first part of it even. 
Yeah, and I mean, like, it, it's about a hundred pages before you can really get hooked into it, and right. somehow I managed to. I mean, like, I was lucky that I was at a, a, a raised in a time when there wasn't a ton of internet at that point. Like, yeah. I didn't have the kinds of distractions that were keeping me from it, so uh, I managed to get through it, and it made it very difficult to talk to people around me for a while because, like, how do you start a conversation about quality at that age and? Um, right. But it, it definitely sparked my interest in philosophy. And it's an interesting book because it's very outside the mainstream of academic philosophy. And it's looked down on the same way that like Ayn Rand has kind of looked down a little bit less. So at this point, I think Pierce has been rehabilitated some. But the book, in a sense, sort of takes a bunch of shots at academic philosophy, too. So, right. uh, you know, when I got to um, undergrad at, at UVA... Um, and I found this philosophy department, I got really into it, and I started writing papers. I was writing a lot about Piercing, and I had a teacher who told me at one point, you got to stop writing about Piercing. Like, <laughs> this this is not working. You need to talk about other things now. Um, which was a hard thing to hear at the time, because that was all I really had. But, like, it was a fair point in hindsight. And, like, it was useful to, to come around to focusing on other things. Yeah. Oh, um, that's funny. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like I would have had a similar you know i mean all we we don't get to choose our early path and and it's interesting the mm-hmm. way that our i don't know i don't know what i believe anymore about personality or temperament but I, I feel like something about the combination of nature and nurture and you know creates an interesting uh patterns in people about what they seek out and what they they go for and i you know for a while i bounced between science and and humanities and ended up as a pastor and which is about as far from science as you could get, I guess. <laughs> and still to this day, have difficulty relating sometimes to uh, to science and scientists and and the way that science scientists think. Um, but hmm. um, maybe that's a, t- a topic for another day. Um, <laughs> I, I can understand. There's there's certain. I mean, maybe it's related to sort of our main topic. I guess a little bit. Um, I, 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 I sympathize with where they're coming from, but, um, I also think we have to be very careful about how we approach our scientific understanding. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something about, um, a desire for empirical findings that is very intoxicating and the possibility of it is very, you know, exciting. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, and I don't, from my experience, at least, you know, there's certain fields where empirical findings are really you know, amazing and you can have them. Um, but you can't always have them, you know, in, in every conversation. And, and I find that, you know, sometimes conversations break down when we're talking about, you know, subtle things and nuances of, of meaning. Um, I just got into a thing on inadvertently today with someone who was talking about spiritual, the word spirituality and saying that we should never use the word spirituality. It doesn't mean anything. And, and, you know, you know, it's just like, okay, well, thanks for being like the word police, you know, and telling us what words mean. And, and I guess we're none of us are allowed to use that word anymore or talk about what various meanings are. Like, I'm just curious what people mean when they say the word. I'm not interested in banning the mm-hmm. word, you know. So I, I guess there's this kind of uh, sense of um, what counts as evidence and what counts as uh, meaning and truth that is uh, that gets. And, I, you know, I was in, in the sense... In as much as I got any philosophical training at all, I was definitely in the continental school, and um, it's challenging to then try to engage with people from the analytic side of things where things are much mm-hmm. more cut and dried. 
Yeah, and like these, none of these are new problems, right? This goes all the way back to like Socrates being such a pain that they killed him about the definitions thing. Like, <laughs> it, it's it is hard. There is this desire. There's these two sort of competing intuitions within philosophy. There's the analytic intuition that like truth can best be found by taking complicated things and breaking them down and breaking them down into their composite parts until you can understand those tiny little parts and then build your understanding back up from there. That's a a very useful way to achieve certain kinds of knowledge. It's a very useful part of the system of what we call science, right? That kind of atomistic approach. Yeah. Um, But it has trade-offs, right? You have the flip side intuition, which is the holistic kind of view that there are situations where the nature of the whole can sometimes be more than the sum of the parts, and and the relationship between the parts and the whole then becomes very complex, and you have to be careful that in trying to decompose the thing down atomistically, you don't um, lose insights into the real nature of the entity you're trying to study. Right. Even in my conversation with Ina, uh, yeah, of, you know, the previous episode, you know, we sort of encountered this kind of challenge that we face when we're talking about things like religion with various different types of interlocutors on the internet, you know, where you're saying, mm-hmm. you know, there's a time and place, right, to, you know, one perspective is, you know, there's a time and place to discuss and criticize certain things, and maybe there's a time and place not to for the sake of understanding and sensitivity and, and maximizing uh, other goals like um, harmony and, and peace. And, and other people will say, you know, the hard line, you know, kind of everything is subject to criticism and and, you know, the other person would say, mm-hmm. well, of course, like everything's subject to criticism. Nobody's questioning that. But is this the right time? And and then, you know, if it's not the right time, then what are you trying to say? Are we trying to, like, bend the truth to meet people's, you know, um, feelings, you know, trying to accommodate people's feelings and feelings aren't facts and facts don't care about your feelings. And pretty soon you're into this kind <laughs> of like, oh, boy. So, yeah, well, I mean, that's that that claim is incredibly important. I mean, not the person who made it popular, but the concept itself, facts don't care about your feelings, is a really crucial encapsulation of a major conflict that is related to, you know, like the moral realism stuff that we're going to talk about, like yeah. which which side of the world things like morality falls on in terms right. of feelings or facts is incredibly important. Which side of, and like, what you can see, I think, in the individuals who take the facts, uh, the, the the reals not feels view is that they ultimately, when push comes to shove, will jettison ethics and will say, I'm okay with nihilism as long as it means that I don't have to care about feelings in a robust kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how that adage can come back to bite you in the ass if you're not careful. Like. You- you you deploy it in, on on the one hand, and it comes back around to get you in a different different setting. So to get into the thing that I, I really mainly want to talk to you about today, I, I want to start by sort of I guess I want to frame this from the perspective of people who grew up religious and like myself and like so many of my guests and listeners uh, grew up with an understanding of, of of ethics and morality as a divine command, and you know most of us would not have. Uh, been able to articulate it that way when we were growing up in the church or when we listened to sermons or when we were trained before we got baptized or whatever, that that's what we were believing. But that was what we were believing, right? That things were true um, and right because God said so. 
and that was the the anchor that was the the stake in the ground that you could orient yourself around and the 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 there was moral truth in the universe because god grounded that truth in god's self right and mm-hmm. and then when you become an atheist or when you lose your faith and and then or even when you're just talking with people like william lane craig or whatever these apologists who will then say, well, if you don't have that grounding, you can't have any understanding of morality at all. That to me seems like the way that many of us come into this conversation around moral realism. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. That like, um, there's a natural step away from moral realism, I think, for people who step away from religion and there is a heated debate, I think, and a lot. there are a lot of folks who stand to gain from giving you the impression, in my opinion, that um, you can't have moral truth without some version of God, because that's a way to, I think, hook you back into that kind of mindset. So one of the reasons that I care a lot about metaethics, something that might seem, you know, a little unlike what I was saying earlier about the kind of philosophy that really matters to people, it's not applied in in, in a straightforward kind of way, is that I think it's really important for these deeper questions of meaning and a sense of responsibility that people care a lot about and that they can feel sort of very unmoored in in the modern um, secular world, essentially. And it it dawns on me, even at this moment, that... You know, part of my social justice consciousness, which I learned from from theology and from my experience in the church, was grounded in the sense that there was justice in the world, in the universe. Like there was, in order to advocate for social justice, there has to be at least some sense that there is there is a justice that we're pursuing, right? That we're moving towards. And uh, it dawns on me just now and listening to you that part of the pushback against social justice in the secular community and uh, and the accusation that social justice warriors, if you will, um, is like a, a like a religion. And we have, you know, I started collecting quotes. Mm-hmm. There's at least six or seven now prominent philosophers and social scientists who have said this essentially this adage that social justice is like a religion. And I wonder if it, it just occurs to me that maybe that's partly motivated by this idea that there is some kind of justice that we all have to adhere to and that feels religious to them. Yes, I think um, in their view, a lot of them, and a lot of them come from scientific backgrounds, like in their view, um, the appeals to, um, an ab- especially an absolutist, because I think people often conflate moral realism with a kind of absolutism. So what what seems to them to be a very dogmatic, very rigid moral structure they think is bad in the same ways that conventional religious moral realism is often problematic in that it is very dogmatic and authoritarian divine command theory that the divine command theory that you were talking about earlier right Mm. is problematic insofar as if the bible says slavery is good what do you do we're stuck you know yeah Right, you're in kind of a bind there. Well, so, that's where theology think, comes in. We had, you know, theology was the to me after I left the church. My definition of theology was the, you know, the work you have to do to explain how the Bible really means something different. And you know, you, sure, when you encounter, you know, slavery as a, you know, part of the divine command, then you have to do a lot of work to get around it. 
Yeah, and I mean, I ultimately think that you're better off doing that same work, which I would call ethics, without mm. trying to use the language of this ancient book. Right. That is, you know, has some really good stuff in it, but is wildly inconsistent on a lot of things. And, like, cribs from, I think, better better sources in a variety of ways, like the Greek sources. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think um, I'm I'm very bullish about the idea in response to folks like... Uh, Craig and your um, your previous guest who was, you know, nervous about, or, well, you know, I don't know how strongly he really believes his thesis, but he seemed to sort of be advocating that, like, a scientific naturalist atheist can't also be very pro-objective uh, moral truth existing in this world. I think that, that not only are we better, you know, not only that, like, can we, but we're better positioned to do so, I think, than... Uh, religious individuals though i'm happy to just focus on the positive case for secular ethics and leave the the debating about how god and the euthyphro all work out for another time maybe if you want to yeah sure and i think this is a good um point i, I sometimes i feel like in in my conversations with folks i get into the thing before I, we actually talk about what sort of say what we're talking about so maybe to back up a step and just i guess how would you describe moral realism to to you know our audience that's um, you know, a fairly encapsulated sense, and and how does it differ from other ways of looking at like moral systems? Sure, and, and obviously, first of all, I should say for any term, you know, there's X number of philosophers who will tell you a different definition. I'm going to give you a definition that I derive, I take from uh, Rush Schaefer Landau, who was mentioned um, in your in your earlier episode towards the end, right. uh, from a book called Moral Realism and Defense, which is where I get a lot of. I mean, like I'll be I'll be real honest. I inherit a lot of my personal views from reading that book, which I think is a really important thing. That if anyone is interested in the the really gritty details of what I'm arguing for here, should give it a try. Uh, but the the really important takeaway is all the moral realist wants to claim is that there are some truths in morality that are objective, by which we mean belief independent, or what's sometimes called stance independence, mm. which is to say they are true independent of any individual's beliefs about them. That's that's the only thing that we want to claim. Everything else is up for debate on how that works. The, the key intuition that we think can't be rejected is that there are certain objective ethical truths you know, in a sense, quote unquote, out there in the world, in the sense that we did not choose for them to be true ourselves. If that makes sense, there's no. A, and I, it does. I mentioned the euthyphro, and let me, um, you know, I'll just, I'll just mention it briefly, not sure. towards the theists, but in, towards myself, which is right. The question is, are, are things moral because we say they're moral, or do we say they're moral because they are moral? And the moral realist wants to take the second horn and say they are moral because. Uh, we think they are moral because they are, in fact, moral. So another way to say that might be that we discover these things mm -hmm. rather than inventing them. Yes, created, not discovered is a common way that this is distinguished. So alternate views, um, you know, views that are in conflict with moral realism are commonly things like subjectivism that says, you know, what is moral is whatever you or whatever a group of people think is moral um the constructivists will try to generate some kind of objective morality even though they think that like there's nothing ultimately out there they think that 
maybe through something like a social contract, we can come together and generate some objective or functionally objective moral truths that we can all abide by and accept as as if true, basically. Um, but the moral realist wants to say, no, they're just genuinely objective moral truths out there that societies and individuals either correctly cognize, correctly recognize, or fail to do so. That's just, and, and like everything else after that is weird, but like that is unimpeachable, we think. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So like physical yeah. constants, we would think of these mm-hmm. as kind of moral constants. Yeah, and we gotta we have to be a little bit careful. There's like sure. there's a whole debate around natural non naturalism, but it, I, I guess what I want to say is in the important relevant sense of here when we're talking about objectivity, right? Um, moral truths are objective in the same way that the speed of light and gravity are objective, and they exist in the world, quote unquote, in the same way that the speed of light exists out there and isn't just something that we could change or make up as we see fit. And then, you know, one of the claims that I hear a lot that, you know, makes a lot of sense to me, to be honest, and was the first kind of concept of moral formation that made sense to me after theism was this, the evolutionary notion that as proto-humans or pre-humans or like hominids Mm -hmm. started to gather together into groups and perhaps cooperate and hunt together and build small-scale communities and eventually like what we might call societies. There were certain kinds of uh, what we might call moral behaviors that were evolutionarily advantageous to the group and that those became learned and then maybe passed on genetically uh, the, the the impulse to cooperate or empathy or uh, compassion, like sadness when you see someone get hurt because you have this kind of sense that, gosh, I, I know what that would feel like if I got hurt like that. And, and just, so is this evolutionary uh, concept that I'm expressing very poorly um, compatible then with the, mm-hmm. the, the kind of basic notion of moral realism? I absolutely think so. I actually wrote my, my master's thesis arguing that, Uh, Moral realism can survive a kind of skeptical challenge that gets raised based on the very evolutionary model that you're defending, and which I think is true. Like, I absolutely buy that. And this is a really good moment for, for, I think, um, for us to distinguish between, like, three categories of really important questions here. And this Mm -hmm. is where I think this conversation often gets very muddy for people, is that they will jump from one category to another without realizing they're even doing it in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So one really important set of questions here is what found, what is the foundation of the truth, right? What, what grounds the truth of moral claims? If anything grounds the truth of them, right? Are they grounded in God's divine being? Are they grounded in um, being self evidently true based on certain claims or something? Are they grounded you know, like, um, what what makes them? Or are they subjective, right? Another, are they like, are they true because people think they're true, right? So that's one set of questions. Another set of questions are access questions. This is an um, epistemological questions about mm. um, how do we gain access to the moral truth, if at all, right? Do we get there through the evolved mechanisms that you're describing? Do we get there via pure reason? Uh, via a mix of of reason and intuitions through a reflective equilibrium, those kinds of questions. The theist and might then a say revel- set, revelation or something. 
Yeah, divine revelation would be the other ex- example exactly. Okay. Um, and then the third question, which is very important, um, but needs to be kept separate, and I think often, very often, gets run together with the truth question is, um, are ethical claims motivationally effective, and in what way are they motivationally effective? So there's a whole cluster of questions about like, should moral claims have to be motivationally effective? Is it okay if they fail to be motivationally effective sometimes is it is hmm. it fine if they don't motivate everyone like how what do we want from them in that sense and that's a that's a whole sort of big important cluster of questions and and sometimes i think the theists will slide into it they don't they don't make the old style argument anymore where they're like you know um nothing is going to motivate atheists to be moral anymore so they're going to run amok but they will i think sort of tiptoe into the idea that um whatever naturalist style realism replaces divine command theory it won't have the same persistent motivational effectiveness that um theistic morality does and i think that's actually the third of those three questions is the hang-up that christian Mm -hmm. smith my guest from a few episodes ago uh was Mm -hmm. really pushing and if you go back and listen to that that um podcast episode, he wants to say that um, a moral system is um, mm-hmm. a good one or a or a reasonable one or one that would be um, one that he would feel confident in only if there were good reasons to behave a particular way and it had the motivational force to, I guess, uh, make a broad-based mm-hmm. claim op- upon everyone's loyalty or something like that, that everyone must... Um, mm-hmm. like we get to the oughts, but not just a little bit, like everybody ought to, like when we have to be able to really motivate everyone to, to agree with that. And, um, I ended up feeling like that was too high of a bar, um, for, for, um, anyone, a theist or a non-theist really, um, and probably higher for the theist. Um, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I don't know why he chose to like mix those things together so strongly. Yeah, I mean, I think the most charitable read here is that he maybe consciously, no, not, I mean, not consciously, but buys into, and, is, and ironically sort of buys into the tradition that he's critiquing, which is the rationalist view that a good reason will be motivationally effective, where the reality is that even the best reasons are only contingently motivationally effective because human beings are not rational. Yeah, we're not robots. Are, like, we don't respond to stimuli no. the way a computer would. Right. So in a sense, you're right. It's too high a bar because there's no conception, there's no system of reasons that will ever meet the idea of motivating literally everyone. Even, you know, I'll argue that like certain ethical claims are in in effect self-evidently true, but I don't think that that necessarily means that everyone will see them as self-evidently true no matter what. Right. There's just there's there's no silver bullet for convincing people to care about something, especially folks who have substantial. Um, and this gets very careful. We want to be very careful and say this, like certain kinds of low empathy disorders, um, things like uh, what they call the dark triad sociopaths and um, narcissists and uh, borderlines who have very, very hard times with the, they, they, they have struggle with the mechanisms that you were just describing right. that evolve naturally for a lot of people. And, and if those mechanisms become underdeveloped, it becomes 
very hard to provide them an, a motivational alternative to there's there's no real perfect way as Nagel would say to make up for genuinely not genuinely caring about other people and their interests so that's the motivational question in my opinion i think it's the easiest of the three to right. sort of address compared to the truth and access which are much trickier much more mysterious for some folks yeah and i feel like um people that are sort of philosophically minded and by that i don't mean like smart or anything i just mean like obsessed with like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin type of questions um, can get really hung up on the foundations question. Mm-hmm. And and it, the, the more practical questions, I guess, come in sort of in, in stage two where we're looking at um, how how can we gain access to this? Can we, how effectively can we even gain access to what's morally true? And then to me, like maybe 2A or 2B would be like, how do we then as a society shape ourselves around what we think we know about what's good? And, you know, if, because a mm-hmm. lot of these conversations, sort of as I was saying before about the difference between like an empirical approach to questions, um, uh, it, it, it's almost like we envision um, like, an, like a single individual in a vacuum or something or two individuals mm-hmm. in a vacuum, like how would they or the trolley problem, like which is like this isolated system of like a trolley and a handful of people and we're going to figure out. But but like our lives aren't like that, right? We, we live our lives in, right. with a complex set of loyalties and commitments and biases and triggers from emotional trauma and all this other stuff, right? That, that we um, each carry around with us and we're each so different from each other, not to mention anything about culture or historical context. Like I think I'm responding morally to questions. I, I, let me say it this way. I'm responding to moral questions differently since the election of Donald Trump than I would have before. Like, I think I mm-hmm. would, I think I would admit that certain things are permissible that maybe eight years ago, five years ago, I would have said are not permissible. Well, I was going to say, you mentioned to me that you, you got, you picked up um, McIntyre's after virtue recently. Have you gotten to start reading it yet? Well, actually I read it in grad school Okay, as part of my research and I didn't, it was sort of out of my uh, comfort zone in terms of like, the material itself not that i disagreed with it or anything Mm -hmm. in fact i was inclined to agree very strongly with him as best i understood him but i don't think i had the adequate training to really understand him the first go at it so i'm starting back into it yeah it's a it's a dense nut for sure but i was just a lot of what you were saying there is um sort of shot for shot the the virtue theorist critique of um what was going on in philosophical uh, ethics sort of as that kind of material as folks like McIntyre were um, pressing for the need for this alternate approach to ethics, which does exactly what you're saying that like ironically is um, what your guest um, Christian Smith was um, advocating for towards the end there, which is a return to Aristotle, right. which is um, a return to this view of ethics as more than just what do you do in situation X, but what does it mean to lead a good life? How do you build a good person? And this gets to the motivation question, which is why I wanted to dive in here a little bit on this, is that another, I think, really valuable answer that I like to put forward for how do you do the motivation side of this, which is really, really important, is habituation. That 
ultimately right. providing people knowledge doesn't change their behavior if they don't apply that knowledge and practice if they and like ideally you want to be giving someone access to this kind of knowledge early on in their lives and giving getting them to habituate themselves to think about and care about these ethical factors so that when they are put into challenging situations later on it's you know it's natural it's part of their practical reasoning to think about the important things and act based on them. I get really excited when anybody starts talking about Aristotle. I have such a strong bias in favor of this approach to ethics, a virtue approach, and the idea of habits and patterns of life, and mm-hmm. that that so much of the texture of our lives is about choices that we make, about the way we want to pattern it or, or the habits that we embrace. And... I, I have a couple of concerns about this, actually, that are really relevant, I think, to a post-theistic, post-Christian America, at least. Uh, one is that the notion of habituation, to me, implies authority. And I, I want to just put a pin in that and ask you to think, you know, reflect on that. Like, it's usually like a parental authority, right, that is creating the pattern, and uh, the second question is really wh- in what context, and now we're sort of moving into sociology, in, in what social settings are people in the modern American sort of society being habituated into practices and um, life patterns that are, that are uh, conducive to moral formation? Growing up, for me, it was the church. And I think for the most part, the church has sort of, you know, maybe in an unofficial sense said, okay, we'll take that part, you know, of, of uh, you know, human development um, in, in the modern West. And as we see the church, you know, just yesterday or today, a story came out saying that there are now like a parody between unaffiliated, if you take Catholics and evangelicals and put them together, they're equal to the number unaffiliated in in the United States. So we're we're reaching that point where there's more people unaffiliated with religion than there are people affiliated with religion. And atheists and secularists generally take this to be as wildly good news. And I understand that because we, we, I don't think we need to explain to this audience why that's a, a good thing. But it also comes with some concerns and a sense of being unprepared to actually shape uh, moral discourse and and moral patterns in in people's lives does that make sense yeah i i think so i also worry i mean like there's a confluence of events going on that that worries me the same factors that are increasing that that pull towards secularism that sort of increasing number of nuns in the world uh or at least in america i think you know stuff like the internet um also makes it harder in some ways and maybe easier potentially hopefully in other ways to sort of solve this problem of habituation there are a lot of places on the internet i think where you can get sucked into some really terrible habits Mm, Um, mm -hmm. i've spent some time in some of those places um but you know here's the thing let me first just step back and answer make make a comment about the authority thing that you brought up earlier because i sure. do think that is an important question and one that especially liberal secular individuals who came from abusive authority backgrounds right. will be very sort of sensitive to and i'm sympathetic to that uh as someone who 
awkwardly wears the mantle of expert in some situations. Mm. Um, I my, my first thought is habituation and mimicry are unavoidable. They are the found, foundational truths of human behavior, as far as I can tell, of human psychology. And that, like, you're never going to live in some kind of ideal situation where individuals rationally choose, you know, despite what the, you know, like the modernists will think, what the individuals rationally choose their set of beliefs and desires and all that sort of thing. Everyone's learning things from the people around them all the time. So your choices are habituate them in a positive direction or don't right um give them good things mimic or don't and sometimes that means taking a very hands-off approach that's that's sometimes important to let people sort of figure things out on their own it's not saying take a heavy-handed authoritarian position every single time but it does mean that you can't you can't walk away from these i these problems these the need for people to be habituated uh, in some kind of way. But that being said, I think there are good opportunities out there for that, even on the internet, where there is the lots of terrible people doing terrible, you know, lots of normal people who've been habituated to act in terrible ways. Cause I do think right. that, you know, we don't, we probably will never have time. We won't have time for this on the show, but like, I think it's luck for everybody, whether you end up, you know, in one place or another in a lot of these ways. Um, but like, you know, I see a lot of hope, you know, I'll, I'll, <clears throat> I'll praise my own my own group in in the sense that like in the philosophers in space group uh which we have on Facebook you have a, you know getting on towards a thousand people who seem to be coexisting in a in a fun space where people have hard conversations about philosophical topics and also post you know uh, all sorts of ridiculous memes that I think <laughs> you can agree some of which are deeply incomprehensible but like I get I get messages from folks where they're like there's something weird about this particular space that like mm-hmm. they don't ever feel uncomfortable or um and it's not like you know there's an authoritarian thing standing over people to tell them to act in certain ways there's just no there's no need for it it's very lucky in that kind of way and you can't always have that like oftentimes you need structure you need boundaries um but I guess I just point to it to me as sort of you never hear enough stories about those kind of communities online. You only hear about like 4chan and uh, 8chan and, and like 16 million chans. Um, right. It's just, you know, uh, because that, that stuff gets more clicks, gets more interest a lot of the time. But it's the way so that I, I think it's the way that conspiracy theories are often more viral than the truth, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, mm-hmm. there's a kind of uh, social currency that goes with, being an outlier who's like, you know, holding on to some fringe truth, so to say, that the system is against them. You know, I think there's a a real attraction somehow in our mm-hmm. psychology for that. Yeah, I mean, like if I'm being optimistic, though, for all of that, like, be- if nothing else, you can rely on human beings to try to go out and get what they want. And what they want is meaning and connections. So, like, it's going to take a little bit of time to figure out how to get that in this new technological age. But I I don't think that we're going to see a collapse of human connection. And I don't think we're going to see collapse of wholesale collapse of community in that kind of sense. We may see, you know, climate change precipitated collapse of communities or something. But, like, right. I, I, I genuinely think that um, people are not going to... Um, the people are going to find. The people are going to find a way again to 
find the communities they need, whether they walk away from religion or whether they spend a lot of time online. And those two things are often connected, I think. You know, you walk away and you need you need community and, like, the easiest place to find it is a chat room with other people who've had a similar experience recently. And there's nothing bad about that being in a digital format, I don't think. Right. Um, and then there's also these substitutes for church that are springing up in different formats around around the country and around the world. Um, the the mm-hmm. other two institutions that, you know, give me a measure of hope is um, the family, which I want to come back to in a moment, and then also mm-hmm. um, institutions of learning, schools, and um, why I think, like you mentioned luck a minute ago, and, and why I think luck plays such a large role in um, our just our development as human beings in general um, you know, you you either luck out or you don't when you are born into a family. And depending on what kind of family you're born into and the circumstances of that family, you may or may not get to continue your education in a, in a mm-hmm. particular way that your geography is a matter of luck. And in certain geographies, you're exposed to different ideas and different challenges, which would broaden your, your knowledge and your understanding of others and, and create mm-hmm. more of that moral framework. And which is why I think, I guess another thing that's on my mind and um, is the way in which I think leftists and more progressive people tend to think in terms of systems, which is again my preference as well. Like I, I tend to have a bias towards thinking systemically. Um, you know, I I recycle my recyclables, but I'm also aware that, you know, I can't recycle enough recyclables to save the planet. There's going to have to be a much larger scale set of solutions applied um, while I'm recycling. You know, I can choose to not eat meat, but, you know, that's not going to materially change the condition of our planet um, unless we all suddenly decide to do that. And, and, and so, you know, progressive, you know, maybe more like... Um, less libertarian, more planned society types would say, okay, that's where, you know, the government steps in and says, okay, we're not using plastic bags anymore at the grocery store. And we begin to change social patterns by democratic processes. um, But Mm -hmm. you sort of take away certain options from people and you begin to shape their behavior societally. Um, You know, like I, and I, the plastic bag thing is a perfect example to me because I, have every best intention of not using plastic bags, but I would always forget my my reusable bags. And then California's County of Los Angeles said, normal plastic bags. And guess what? I start to remember my bags. <laughs> you know, I start to remember yeah. my, my grocery bags. And it actually changed my behavior. And I'm not saying every problem can be solved like that. I don't think we should, like, you know, mandate vegetarianism or anything like that. Um, Yet no, <laughs> but but mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm very interested because conservative authors and I there are a couple of conservative authors that I've read or slightly more conservative authors that talk a lot about fabric of society type losses that they're agonizing about, sort of related to what I said a minute ago, the, the breakdown of the family, the breakdown of mm-hmm. like what they perceive mm-hmm. as the normal community, which very quickly becomes like racist and and very. Uh, you know, uh, sort of a weird normative type of thing that has no basis. It's just kind of what they're used to or what society was based on previously. But there is something there about the fabric of society breaking down that people don't relate to each other the way they used to. So to me, it seems like there's a, 
it is a long, unfortunately long rambly way of saying I feel like there's both interpersonal as well as system-based problems and then therefore, I guess, solutions. Like we can't start enough mm-hmm. Oasis communities, uh, you know, to connect everyone in the country. But that doesn't hurt to have that, right? Like it's good to have like your, you know, tabletop gaming group that you hang out with or your bicycling club that you go out with. At the same time, we all need freaking, you know, medical care. Uh, and we should fix that for everyone. Yeah. Uh, one other um, piece that I think uh, I would include there when you you sort of mentioned education and the family as ways to like keep keep community going, keep um, um, the the methods of habituating people to be better people going. The other one is art. Like when we talk about um, culture, what we're often I think talking about is our artistic language and how how rich is that artistic language for expressing things about the nature of our lives and our experiences and in that sense you know we're living in a golden age of artistic expression i think for all of the yeah. like garbage that's out there there's so much wonderful art out there that is bringing people together in communities and that's where the internet can provide you know a million you know you get bad fan you know like not bad but you get um sort of what we call toxic kinds of fandoms like some parts of rick and morty but you also get you know a lot of people who can come together over shows they loved when they were younger and and like newer versions of those shows and like i think and you see in sort of the best art that's out there the kinds of ethics that we want to be seeing in ourselves just like you always have right that was the whole point of the heroic uh, epic myths all the way back to the Greeks and now you've got Captain Marvel inspiring young women to to realize to smash the patriarchy essentially right um so that's that's yeah. the kind of really important stuff and i think you know if we're being honest a lot of the times when the people say collapse of civilization or collapse of society what they mean is the collapse of the parts of society that aren't really helping us as much like the patriarchy and that kind of do need to collapse but that right. some people are are still invested in um as part of the status quo so right yeah i mean some parts of society collapse and they're replaced by better more interesting parts of society <laughs> Right. And I, I totally agree with that. And, and I think there's also a kind of lived experience of um, loss, whether if, even if it's a good loss, mm-hmm. that is, is just painful for people and there's no shortcut around it. So, if, you know, if mm-hmm. we're smashing the patriarchy, that's necessarily going to feel like a loss to a good number of men. And, you know, that sense of loss is not something to circumvent or even anesthetize really, but to really lean into it and feel it and understand it for what it is and allow our imaginations to create a better future. But, but I just, I guess I just Mm want to sort of, I guess, say that there is this affective response to societal change that can create a feeling like things are coming apart. And I think this is where individuals like, you know, Jordan Peterson and, you know, other um, people who I'm trying to think who else it fits into that category that is speaking into that void that people feel uh-huh. it's not necessarily a void but it's a it's a lived exp- feeling of of uh, of loss right and the analysis or the diagnosis is very wrong um, but but the the presenting symptoms I think are are really important and one of the things that I think 
keeps me up at night a little bit about people like Jordan Peterson is how successfully he's capitalizing on this sense of loss and this sense of loss of place and belonging in ways that are so pernicious and so like um, um, corrosive um, to the kinds of habituation that you and I are talking about that it makes me wonder what should we be doing to maybe reach some people that are not being reached in a good way. Yeah. I mean, I guess here's my, like, I, I, it's weird that I'm on here playing the optimist. That's not usually my role, but like, usually when people talk since, to me, they end up falling into that role. <laughs> I know. I mean, well, like, look for 300 years now, at least there's been this arc slowly of social progress and the expanding of the moral community mm-hmm. and, and essentially progressivism, liberal progressivism has been on the march in in the West, especially for better and and for worse, but I think mostly for better. Um, and there have always been famous, popular conservatives who said, "Look at all the things that they're taking away from you in their march towards progress." Right. And like, I, I understand that. I, I just think that that's always going to be there. Yeah. And that we can't we can't see that as a measure of the success of what's going on. So let me look at like a very concrete example here, right? Uh, Bill Cosby, right? right? Just saying the name makes everybody uncomfortable now. Yeah, chills. Right? And, like, I used to quote his stick all the time. Me like, too. Like, we would do his bits when we were, when we were like, at summer camp, and we were, like, dealing with children and how <laughs> brain damaged they were. And we would want to – and, like, it just feels uncomfortable to do any of those shticks now. And that's yep. a loss. Right. And it's a pretty small loss when you compare it to the loss that like the women he dealt, he mm. treated that way experienced. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So like, you know, you're right in the sense that there is a cost that comes with the discovery of objective ethical truth and the implementing of it in a world that was previously less moral. I, I totally agree. But I think, you know, it's for the better, obviously. And obviously you agree. Um, and for the people who are experiencing that, you know, sit with that loss, uh, understand that there's no easy way around it, and then, you know, comfort yourself on the infinite amounts of good content that are out there in the world that are being produced by people who didn't rape anyone. Right. Yeah. And I agree. I agree. I just, I just wonder if sometimes there's a way that something I should be doing that I'm not doing to, I, I don't know get to those I mean, people maybe maybe it's just one of those things where attrition is the thing you know where certain people with certain ideas are just going to have to live out their lives with those bad ideas and then hopefully progress continues if you like i mean and like aristotle was wrong about a lot of things him like bill cosby he was not great towards women right um but another thing aristotle said and you can disagree with him or not is that if you don't get good habituation early on it's very hard to make up for it and that a lot of people are just going to be stuck in the patterns that they are built into for better and worse and that's why i do you know lean towards the moral luck lean towards the forgiveness because it's so easy to get habituated in the wrong way during a part in your life when you have very little control over how anything is going um so so yeah like i i am i am sympathetic to all this you know we did like three episodes on our show on incels like we've talked about the the situation that men are dealing with and i think it is really important to talk about though um you know obviously it's um you know we, we need to be giving more airtime as well to like the larger me too problem that is not you know oh some men are losing their careers but is this 
massive systemic harm that has been continuously and continuing to be sort of exacted upon predominantly women by a patriarchal society. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm reluctant to even bring it up, you know, at times because I don't, I don't want it to sound or, or, or to be like I'm prioritizing the feelings of, you know, men who feel like they're yeah. losing, losing something because they have to share some power with, with women or people of color. There's a huge part of me that just wants to be like, well, fuck those guys, you know, and k- keep up, you know, and if you can't keep up, well, you know, sorry. Um, there's another part of me, I guess the pastoral part of me that wants to say like, maybe there's something I should be doing since I'm a white dude, you know, who could have easily mm-hmm. gone that way myself. Um, given my history, I lucked out. So maybe I should, there's something I can do to reach back. I don't, you know, I don't know. I guess, you know, grow where you're planted in, in a sense, like I'm doing what I can do with, you know, Secular Student Alliance with my work at USC and, and just my one-on-one work with individuals whenever I meet them. And none of us, you know, I was also habituated into a savior complex as well, as you can tell. So um, it's not my job to fix happens. everyone. Um, yeah. And I mean, like, you know, caveats aside, let's talk about the the situation for men, because it isn't just loss of power. Like, I think we don't want to say that the only reason that the current situation is rough for men is because of loss of power. It's also because I think as we have revolutionized or continuing to revolutionize our view of gender and sexual, you know, responsibility, a lot of men don't know what their role is anymore. And I agree. And sort of, yeah. they've deprived of a variety of, um, conventional sort of sources of their role and they haven't necessarily been provided like you said very clear sort of straightforward alternatives i think that's starting to change though i think we're starting to see sort of morally progressive male role models again it goes back to that you can't avoid having people mimicking behavior so you either have good people for them to mimic out there in the world or you don't Um, yeah i think we're starting to see you know more and more there are sort of Chris Evans types out out there in the world who are just like, you know, showing that it's, it's okay to be this kind of man or, or that you don't even need to, you know, like there are other people alternatively like myself who will say, just unhinge the idea of virtue from gender entirely. Right. Like there is no such thing as a gendered virtue. In my opinion, there's just all the virtues that any well-rounded flourishing individual likely needs. Um, and mm-hmm. so we should all be developing empathy. We should all be developing courage. We all need these things. And there's there's a lot of good evidence for that, I think. And I think, you know, where there may be small biological differences, they've been exacerbated by culture, uh, often for harmful reasons. Uh, and that, like, the reality, I think, is that men can be just as empathetic as women. That I've you know, I spent large portions of my life being a primary caregiver. I think that there's nothing about being a man that prevents you from that as long as you haven't been habituated by your culture to think that you are incapable of doing that thing and to have no experience with doing it. Yeah. And and like you said earlier, there's so much good art out there. And I think we we have role models, um, hopefully more role models in our ordinary day to day lives. But we also have, you know, TV shows and more and more politicians that, um, you know, public personalities that are demonstrating that there's a different way to to be whoever you are like there's a you know whoever you are you can be like you say um Mm -hmm. you know a fully rounded ethical human being and um 
you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm, I'm not often hopeful, you know, in these day, these days, but, um, hmm. but I, I like talking to you because you, I think it's, I'm, it, I'm what they call a cheerful fatalist. It's the way I, I, I describe. Like, I like that. I like that a lot. I, I would, I would, uh, I would like to be that. Can I be that? Can you be my yeah. cheaty? I mean, you look, be I, my I think cheaty. everything is determined. And like, well, there's a whole strand within, you know, the wisdom traditions that says, relax, nothing is under your control. <laughs> yeah. And like, I, think I know it's that's, great. That's, that was my parenting uh, thing, you know, like basically as my kids got a little older, um, you know, like in their d- double digits, like between 10 and 12 years old. I I just realized how little control I had, and I was like, "Well, I'm going to either be stressed out or just admit how little control I have." Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think parenting is like the ultimate sort of expression of this habituation that we're talking about, and and then I guess sort of the aunt and uncle thing, you know, where just people can come alongside younger people and and be. Uh, a mentor in whatever sense formally or informally yeah and and learning dispositions learning um you know everyday habits as well so the habit thing for me is not just the momentous moment where you have to make a hard ethical choice and you do the right thing it's the mindfulness of the everyday where you you know do i engage with this person like they're a real person in this moment or do i go through this in an automatic or am I reflecting am I am I reacting to them as if they're the last person who just mistreated me or something like I think that that ethics is wonderful because it can be a part of every moment of your day and if it's done right it's it, it, it enriches that moment rather than burdening it it's not something that's like this annoying extra thing you have to do on top of your your preferences it it brings the world to life in that kind of way because it is about like you were saying earlier like not just trolley problems but like what is flourishing what is you know being a virtuous person in every single moment that you can i'm really enjoying um this this new book called this life by martin hoagland and Mm -hmm. it's it's you know it's this he's um he's a professor of comparative literature and it just it's to me that by itself is so instructive, you know, that, you know, here's a person who has this broad sort of exposure to um, people's thinking, their storytelling, their traditions, um, for better and for worse, right? So, um, you know, drawing from all of that, from, from history and, and really reflecting on um, what it means to be a human, you know, thriving in, in, in our day and age based on that, um, that long tradition. And, uh, I feel like in the, in the secular community, we, we do obviously tend toward the sciences and maybe analytic philosophy proofs of, you know, God's non-existence mm-hmm. or attempted proofs of God's non-existence or whatever. And I feel like we could use a lot more, um, comparative literature and continental philosophy and just really down to earth reflection and uh, about, you know, what the good life is. And, um, I really appreciate your contribution to that. Well, I, I, um, happy to be able to put in my oar a little bit and help along. Um, I, I do think that it is, it is weird and unfortunate that like, and I think you you sort of get the idea of where it's coming from that 
science was our flaming sword to wield against religion and right. it was so effective right it's do- i mean like it put people on the moon like the the argument of can your prayers put people on the moon is a pretty devastating argument when it comes to questions of like how does the world work right you know what i mean yep. like so and 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 it became i think for a lot of people, the only tool that they think we needed in our toolbox, maybe a little bit of logic and math, like you said, but mostly just really radical empiricism. Um, And I think that is a really amazing tool, but it's not the only tool in the toolbox that like epistemology, our our sources of knowledge are much more Mm -hmm. robust than that. And that I think um, in, in getting caught up in that kind of scientism view that that certain secularists you know have have sort of shied away from studying of philosophy or thinking that like philosophy is something that helped get science off the ground and now we don't really need so much or that most of it is like metaphysical navel gazing about you know what really is substance what really is time questions that like truthfully scientists are also still struggling with on a profound level right um so, yeah, so I do think that, but I think that this is something that, again, is moving in the right direction, though not as fast as I would like. I do think that um, we're seeing people recognizing more that they need something more in their in their repertoire than just appeals to scientific knowledge, mostly because I think we're seeing, like, you, you know, a movement away from the sort of straightforward does God exist or not exist question and to these more sort of trickier questions of like which of these two worldviews can provide uh, a happier, more flourishing life in a sense. Right. And that, you know, like that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, which one's true or the other, but like that is something that is important for human beings. And so um, I think for those reasons, I think you're right. Uh, atheists can benefit from studying not just continental philosophy and literature which would be would be great but also there's modern analytic ethical philosophy that's quite readable at like you know it's challenging but i do think provides strong answers to the kinds of questions you'll hear from folks like craig about you know we haven't even gotten to like the, the you know the true nature of moral claims how do they exist in a natural world um but I do think there are good answers for those questions. Yeah, I almost went that way. And then, you know, <laughs> then we went to McIntyre and Aristotle and I, you know, kind of got lost. And uh, I mean, look, you, know, you can do a whole semester on just metaethics. There's so many, <laughs> there's so many problems and questions to cover. Um, I guess my, you know, my main broad takeaway is any question that I've approached so far, I think the moral realist can at least provide as good an answer as anyone else, if not a better answer. Well, and I, I actually was just thinking as you were talking a few minutes ago that, um, you know, I've, I've now had two long conversations with you and, you know, dozens and dozens of, you know, what amounts to text messages basically. And, mm-hmm. um, I think I'm, I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready to give my heart to more realism. <laughs> Another and, convert. <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm actually willing to, um, to embrace it on an a priori kind of basis. Like, and this mm-hmm. is, the, I used to teach this kind of approach to Christianity um, because I knew uh, as a progressive Christian, I couldn't, I couldn't prove to someone that they should be a Christian. Like I can't prove to you that God exists or that Jesus teachings are in the Bible are what they really were. 
it's basically like try it out and if it fits you know maybe if it's a if you if you try on this sort of mental or philosophical system and it matches reality or it enhances your life in a in a way that's consistent with your experience of reality then maybe it's true right so um you know it's it's really kind of the scientific method right like you make a hypothesis and then you test it and you see if you if it's consistent or not and and i i think i i can accept moral realism as a hypothesis and and it because it does uh, there is a certain amount, I guess, of confirmation bias, perhaps at work, that I would like it to be true. Um, mm-hmm. I would, you know, I'm much more comfortable with the idea that there are moral norms in the world, objectively, uh, rather than because um, I could very easily be a nihilist. Um, mm-hmm. Not, not in a sort of, I guess, like suicide cult. It's harder sense. than it looks. Let me tell you. Is it? Yeah, I suppose it is. I actually am of it's quite, quite a livable life. Yeah, and I'm pretty hopeful. I mean, I guess I'm pretty cheerful most of the time, and I, I love, you know, I'm an Epicurean in the sense that I, I love, like, my sensory experience of the world. I love art. I love food. I love, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. you know, people and friendships. I mean, I, 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 I would, I don't want to die. Like, I, I want to experience all of that. Um, but I'm so discouraged by, at times, the the moral turpitude, I guess, of, of, of uh what I see around me. And it is hard as I'm sure, you know, folks like Pinker would point out that it, it's hard not to sort of project my own experience of this onto a large screen and say, this is how everything is. Uh, you've, you know, as you've said that there, there is progress happening. Um, maybe not as fast or as in a straight line as we would like. Um, but yeah, so I, I think I'm, I'm, um, I'm willing on a, on a, uh, contingent basis to, um, accept uh, moral realism into my heart okay let me not that you're converted let me just throw out just a few caveats based on what you've <laughs> said there right just just to be clear right i can't offer you a just universe right a whoa, universe whoa, that whoa, contains whoa, whoa, whoa. what yeah no, no a universe yeah. that contains objective moral truth is not a universe that enacts those inactive moral tr- and objective moral truths right. in a <laughs> in, in, a, in a plan designed kind of way, right? I, obviously, you weren't be- expecting that, but I just want to make clear. That's what I left um, behind. I can't provide that, just like I can't provide a system that will motivate all the people all the time. And also, you know, it, it is, like you said, a reflective equilibrium kind of system. Um, and so it should always still, like... <laughs> Let me let me put it as my as my loving friends the Discordians will say um, for, for your <laughs> listeners who aren't familiar the Discordians is a uh, made up religion that they're all made up um, that worships the goddess of chaos uh, Eris or Discord um, and and their metaphysics is as follows um, whenever we look at the world we look at it through certain frames like a picture frame and according to various frames certain like a theory essentially uh certain things appear ordered and other things appear disordered mm. the true nature of reality underlying all of that sense of disorder and order that you can get you know if you take one frame off and put another frame on different things appear ordered different things appear disordered the underlying nature of reality though is chaos it's just radically undifferentiated chaos um <laughs> and i'm sympathetic to that view uh me too. I don't know if that's the true nature of reality, but I guess my, my, my point in all of this is 
for every philosophical theory, for every theory, right, certain features of the world appear ordered and other features appear disordered or in conflict with that theory. I think moral realism gives the best balance of validating certain intuitions while biting the bullet on other intuitions. There are other people who prefer different balances, but I, I think that this is the most satisfying, most functional one out there. So welcome to the club. Thank you. Um, un- understand that it is limited um, and, and read your Schaefer Landau. And the, uh, there's n- the membership benefits are few. Yes, everyone will hate you. Um, which is true of all ethicists in general, but especially of moral realists, because we're going to tell people that their ethics can't just be what they prefer it to be or something like that. So. Right. They're going to claim that you're being religious, that you're a secret theist. Right. And you, yeah. And you got to prove that you're not a tyrant. And they're going to ask you, well, who, you know, like the number one question that I get that I despise, I'll be honest, is who gets to decide what the moral truth is? <laughs> and you say, I like, do. <laughs> right like just because like a no one decides that's the point of an objective moral truth <laughs> right right we don't decide it we discover it right. but what who discovers it is all of us through a lot of really hard work over a long like, period no, of time there's no committee right. <laughs> right it's everyone getting together and going oh my god slavery that was a bad idea we should never do that again <laughs> and being right like yeah. being objectively right yeah uh, yeah, one of the things I didn't get a chance to talk to you about, and maybe we'll have to revisit this, is the way this plays out in a democ- democratic society. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, we think immediately, I think of, um, you know, the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights. You know, like how mm-hmm. how does a society who, I mean, I think you have to believe in some form of moral realism to come up with a universal declaration of human rights, right? Like you don't just, well, or I guess you could just construct it. Yeah, you could be a thoroughgoing constructivist and still say that it's universal. And yeah. you could be like a rationalist and still say in some ways that it's universal. Or like a um, pragmatist, you know, or uh, the best for the most people, Bentham. Whatever. Oh, utilitarian. Yeah, like a utilitarian kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that how this scales up is is an interesting question that we don't have time for because we've already gone almost an hour and a half, which is fantastic. <laughs> I love this. I was so exhausted at the end of my work day, and now it here it is like seven o'clock here on the west coast, and I'm ready to go. Like I'm pumped up for a, whatever's whatever's next. That's the uh, the thing I've been enjoying so much recently with philosophy and doing all these podcasts and stuff is that I, I experience in people a genuine energy when they talk about this. They're not absolutely. I don't think you're faking it, right? I really do think that like there's a strong felt need out there to be having these conversations, which is great for me because you know these are the conversations that people usually tell you to shut up about. So it's nice to be getting <laughs> this the ultimate reaction. And like I just wanted to say one thing about the democracy thing. While I am a realist, I think that another thing that can be um, balanced with realism is pluralism. That we we have to be honest that there are a bunch of competing ethical foundations like autonomy and utility that don't often line up or right. always line up, certainly. And that when they are in conflict, people can disagree reasonably and come to different conclusions about how they want to live their lives. And that we as liberals should be able to accept within a certain range a bunch of different ways of balancing of these ethical truths. So yeah. that that's part of how I think it should play out in democracy. Just to weren't you, put, you know, one... just to preempt the concern that like this is one one system for everyone, one <laughs> right. set of rules for everybody, kind of thing. We're gonna yeah, we're marching everyone into a new totalitarian regime where um, 
the yeah. rules are decided. I mean, wasn't it you in the in the hangout a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, that said some compared this to like the lack of a unified field theory in physics? Yeah, exactly. That like it would be lovely. Uh, this isn't a cribbing from Nagel, right? It, it, one would prefer a parsimonious system of ethical theories that you could limit, you know, that you could say, you know, you maximize utility except for an X number of situations where there could be a limit to the autonomy of something, but it's all much, much messier and pluralistic than that. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't wrong answers. That's the important thing of the moral realist view is that like yeah. there might be multiple right answers, but there are absolutely some wrong answers and they are objectively wrong. Wow. Well, that's a great place to end right there. Tell us a little bit about where uh, folks can find you online and so forth. Sure. You can find me uh, at either of my podcasts, uh, Embrace the Void, where we talk about the worst horrible timeline that we all currently live in and how to survive it using all this upbeat, fatalistic, uh, <laughs> cheerful fatalism. Um, and then over on Philosophers in Space, we take the art approach and we use uh, science fiction that people love to get them hooked into talking about uh, all sorts of fun philosophical topics. Um, so both of those are available everywhere. And you can find me on Twitter a lot of the time at um, ETVPod. Um, and then also um, Zero G Philosophy is the other Twitter handle. And then come join the Philosophers in Space group on Facebook. It's, cool. it's for both Philosophers in Space and Embrace the Void. And like, it's a great group. And if you like talking about this, if you like listening to this kind of stuff, it's a perfect place for that. Awesome. Yeah, I'll put all the links to that stuff in the show notes so people can easily find you and find the group. I've, I'm, a, I'm a newbie in the Philosophers in Space mm-hmm. group, and it's a lot of fun. A lot of smart people and a lot of learners like me and various you know, stages of, of embracing and learning about all this stuff. So it's very inclusive. It's a lot of shirt posting. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for hanging out and doing this. And uh, we will have to do it again soon. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So there we have it, folks. Another long, rambling conversation that went all over the place, including many places that I didn't originally intend. But I hope you enjoyed it nonetheless. We went, as you can tell, about 30 minutes longer than I typically do on these episodes because I was just having so much fun talking to Aaron. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, or even half as much as I did would be, would be plenty, actually. Uh, we had so much more we wanted to talk about and just ran out of time. And I, I'm sure that Aaron will be a returning guest on a future episode. Of course, if you want to find out more about the Life After God community, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.com. There you can find links to the show on iTunes and all of our social media links. It also really helps us if you rate and review us on iTunes. It would be so awesome if you would just go to iTunes and search for Life After God. Give us a rating, hopefully five stars. And if you have time and feel generous, give us a review there as well. It only has to be a couple of words or, or a short paragraph about why you like this podcast and why others should listen to it as well. This podcast, as always, is made available to you free of charge by the members of Life After God. If you want to become a part of that membership community and be a part of making this podcast possible, please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. There you'll be able to make a recurring monthly donation of whatever size you like to help make this podcast and community a reality. As always, thank you to my executive producer, Jeff Straka, for his generous support of the work that we're doing. 
Thank you for spending a portion of your day with me. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. Thank you.